0: Hi everybody, I'm David and I'm an alcoholic. Through God's grace, the steps of this program, and the help of so many people such as yourselves, I've been kept sober since September 28, 1980, and I really have a lot of gratitude for that. When Johnny first called me and asked me to speak at the Old Timers reunion, I said, this must be an April Fool's joke, you know. I didn't feel like an old timer, but I'm really happy to be here and I'm... uh, Really happy to be out in the uh, in the West Texas plains. I, I'm one of those people that really likes the West Texas plains. I come to Amarillo from time to always drive out to Paladura Canyon and stand up on the rim of that canyon and look out in it. And I always have the same thought: I wish I lived in this area, Canyon or Amarillo, and that's where I would go every morning if I lived here and do my morning meditation and just sit up there and watch the sun come up. It's really one of the great and beautiful sights of the world. I uh. Sorry, I missed last night Miss Mary's talk. I hear it was wonderful. Um, I got involved in a trial back in uh, Dallas yesterday, and we didn't finish till seven o'clock yesterday evening. Uh, which is another way of telling you that I'm a lawyer. I have a double affliction. I'm both an alcoholic and a lawyer. You know, when I uh, when I first got to uh, when I first got to AA. My ego was such that I really thought I was probably the first lawyer that had ever come to AA. And then I got here and found that there were a disgusting number of lawyers in AA. But as lawyers, we pretty well take it on the chin. You probably heard this story, but I'm going to tell it anyway. Uh, Not long ago, the Dallas Bar Association, I'm from Dallas, got wind that the Southwestern Medical School there in Dallas was using lawyers in place of white rats for scientific experiments. The bar association became very concerned, so they sent a delegation out to inquire about it. And the head of research there says, "Yes, that's very true. We are." So there are several reasons for it. First of all, there are more of them than there are the white rats. <coughs> he said. Second, you know, uh, we don't get as attached to them as we do the rats.
1: <laughs>
0: and he said the third reason is there are some things even rats won't do.
1: <laughs> uh, <laughs>
0: People are like, hey, hey, no, I'm a, no, a, a lawyer, so I hear all these lawyer stories. I'm reminded of another one. Two guys were up in a hot air balloon. This happened over in Albuquerque. You know, in the fall, they have that great hot air balloon festival, and there were a couple of people up in a hot air balloon. They got in a cloud bank, which is kind of rare for Albuquerque, and when they came out of the cloud bank, they realized they were lost and didn't know where they were, so they saw a man walking down on the ground, and one of them reached over the side and said, hey, down there, where are we? The guy at the bottom looked up and said, you're in a balloon. (laughs) So the other fellow in the balloon turned around and said, who was that lawyer down there? (laughs) And the guy says, how do you know he's a lawyer? He said, that's easy. Three reasons. He says, first of all, he has a nice manner of speaking. He speaks very well. Secondly, he gave you a direct answer to your question. And third, you didn't learn a damn thing from anything he said. I know I met somebody from Shreveport uh, this morning. Do we have do we have any other do we have any Cajuns here this morning? There's a great great Cajun story about the uh two guys that were sitting in a bar down in southern Louisiana and they got to visit him, so one of them says uh, says, What's your name? He said, My name be Jean. What's your name? He said, My name is Jean also. What's your last name? He said, My name is Jean Paul Boudreau. What's your name? He said, My name is Jean Paul Boudreau also. Where are you from? He said, I come from home down in Black Mean Parish. He says, No kidding, I come from home in Black Mean Parish also. How you spell, how you spell your name? So he pulled over a napkin, he wrote XXX. X, X. He said, that's how I spell my name, XXX, X, X, Jean-Paul Boudreau. How you spell your name? So he got a napkin, he wrote XXX, XXX. X, X, X. He said, what be this XXX, XXX? X? He said, that would be Jean-Paul Boudreau, attorney at law. <laughs> uh, uh, uh. I guess I could tell lawyer stories all day, but, uh, but my job is to, uh, tell you about my experience with alcohol. And I, I want to say I really want to thank the committee for inviting me to speak. It's a real privilege to be able to share our experience in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I look at it that way. It's a real privilege and I'm, I'm just real happy to do it. And it always helps me. I know a whole lot more than it helps you. So I'm happy to be here and I appreciate the, the invitation and I appreciate the opportunity. I was one of those guys that uh, started my drinking career later on. I was about 20 years old. I was a junior in college. I had grown up in uh, in East Texas, a little town that many people describe as a sleepy little East Texas town inhabited primarily by Baptist Sunday school teachers. And uh, where I grew up, drinking was that big, ugly, three-letter word of sin. My parents didn't drink. None of the people I knew really drank. And I grew up with this feeling that bad people drank alcohol, and I really didn't know anything about it. And what happened to me was, during my college time, all of those negative parts of my life built up to the point where I began to rebel against the way I'd grown up. I was uncomfortable with that way. And so I began to rebel against my parents' values and their religion and their politics and their morals. And as a part of that process, <clears throat> I made the conscious decision to drink. It was kind of a bad thing to do, and I made that decision. It seemed to me like the guys that were out there drinking and hustling the girls were the ones having all the fun, and I wasn't feeling like a lot of fun, so I made the conscious decision to drink. Now, it was after my uh, junior year football season. I was a football player at SMU. was SMU in Dallas. was where I was in school. Uh, I was a quarterback. Unfortunately, I was a quarterback at the same time Don Meredith was a quarterback at SMU. (coughs) And what that meant was I had a real good seat right down on the fifty-yard line for most of the ball games. I remember coming out of the dressing room after one of the ball games, and there were always a number of kids around the dressing room. And uh, one of them came up to me and said, "Sir, can I have your autograph uh, on the program?" I said, "Oh, son, you don't want my autograph. I'm just a rinky-dink." He said, "What's your name?" I said, "Muscle White." And He said, "Boy, you sure are." <laughs> I wanted to slap the kid right there. But it was after our junior year football season, and we had a big party after the season each year, and I made the decision I was going to drink. So I went to some of my friends that I knew did drink, because I didn't know anything about it, and I said, I'm going to drink at this party, but I don't know anything about it. What I, what I get? Well, how to I go about this? And they said, well, you may not like the taste of beer. Maybe you don't need to start on beer, and maybe you might not like scotch or bourbon, because it has a lot of taste. Maybe, why don't you start with vodka? It doesn't have any taste, and you'll probably like vodka. And we suggest you mix it with orange juice. So I went to a liquor store that afternoon, and uh, it was the first time I'd ever been in a liquor store, and I said, I want I want a fifth of vodka. He said, do you want 80 proof or 110 proof? I said, well, which one's stronger? He said, the 110 proof. I said, that's what I'll have. So I went to that party that night with my fifth of 110 proof vodka and my orange juice and my date, and I sat down at that table, and I mixed my first drink ever, and I drank it. And sure enough, I didn't taste anything, and to my surprise, I didn't feel anything. So I mixed another one, and I drank it, and I didn't taste anything, and I didn't feel anything, and so I drank another, and another, and another. Well, within 30 minutes, there was only about an inch left in that fifth of 110-proof vodka, and I still hadn't felt anything. Then I made a fatal mistake. I asked my date to dance. And I got up, and the room began to spin, and before I knew it, I was flat on my back, passed out, sick, throwing up all over myself. I totally missed my first drunk. I went straight from first drink to passed out, missed all the intervening fun, didn't feel bigger, taller, better looking than anybody, like I've heard you describe, I totally missed my first drunk.
1: <laughs> they
0: hauled me home, put me in a shower, uh, tried to clean me up, got me in bed, and the next morning I woke up with a pounding headache, feeling terrible, stomach boiling acid, and I had two astounding thoughts when I think back on it. The first thought was, boy, that was really fun. <laughs> I really enjoyed that. And the second thought was, I can't wait to do it again. Isn't that amazing? I mean, I just can't imagine a normal social drinker would wake up with those two thoughts. And so I began to learn to drink a little bit, and I began to love it, and I found a friend, and I began to find something that did for me what I could not do for myself. That alcohol cut the edges off of my anxiety, and it made me feel different in an altered reality and from the very beginning, I drank for the effect that alcohol produced in me. I drank for the way it made me feel. It made me feel different, and I liked it. And I loved it. And I began to drink on a regular basis. Now, I'm one of those who who believes that there is a real mental and, and spiritual component to this disease of alcohol. I recognize that it's physical. I think science has established it's physical. I think there are a lot of hereditary aspects to this disease of alcoholism, as best I can gather from 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 the scientific evidence. But I don't think it's purely physical because if it was, I'm sure somebody could invent a pill we could take and we'd be done with the deal. Except it would probably take too many of those also (laughs) and have a problem. (coughs) But when I first got to AA, I didn't want to believe there was this mental and spiritual part of this disease like the book tells us. I didn't want to think there was anything wrong with my mind. But I've come to understand that through the process of the steps. And as I look back on it, I was a full-fledged alcoholic at the moment I took that first drink. I really was. I had all of those those other mental and spiritual characteristics of this disease. I had that low self-esteem. I didn't like the way I looked, the way I acted, the way I talked, the way I thought. Uh, I didn't think much of myself. And as a result of that low self-esteem, which I think is a common denominator among all of us as alcoholics, it kind of came out with that sort of macho egotism and that having to be better than anybody and having having to prove myself and that desperate need to want to be liked and approved by other people. Such that I completely lost my own identity. I just became, I was like a chameleon. I became whatever it was I thought you wanted me to be. I had those tremendous fears and anxieties, and I had all those resentments and jealousies. I had that guilt, that constant guilt. I'm reminded of an incident that happened when I was in high school. I went with one of my dates to a Sunday night church service at her church, and it was the end of a revival. And uh, they had this tremendous hellfire and damnation preacher, and uh, he was preaching a great sermon at this revival. And at the end, uh, they gave this, uh, uh, they sang Just As I Am, and they sang several verses of it, and the minister was asking people to come down front and dedicate themselves, and and nobody came down. And you could kind of see his face fall, and he was obviously disappointed, and so he obviously decided to try another tack, and, and he said, okay, I want everybody to, to stay seated and bow your heads in prayer and close your eyes and we'll have the organist play one more verse of Just As I Am. And right in the middle of this, he said, now I want anybody who has sinned today to stand up. Now, if I had heard at that time anything from organized religion, it was that I had the power to be a whole lot better than I was. I had that power and I wasn't a lot better and therefore I was a sinner. And I understood we were all sinners and every day we sinned and and, and it was just as bad thinking about it as it was doing it. At that age, you thought about it a lot, and I knew that I had sinned, and so I assumed everybody would stand up, and I stood up, (laughs) then I opened my eyes, and I was the only son of a bitch standing in the whole congregation, but I always had that guilt. I carried that guilt with me as far back as I can remember, and so I came into this disease with all of those negative characteristics. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, uh, uh Bob Malice in, uh, uh, not Bob, what's his name? Frank Malice in Chicago tells a great story. He runs a beginner's group. And he says at that beginner's group, one of the first things I do is take a flip chart and I draw a big picture of an empty whiskey bottle. And I say, okay, newcomers, we're going to determine what, what is alcoholism? What are its characteristics and symptoms? What is this disease? You tell me and we'll fill this bottle with it. And so somebody will raise their hand and say yes. And they'll say fear. Another one will say resentment. Another one will say jealousy. Another one will say anxiety and so on. And they'll fill the bottle with all of those symptoms and character denial, all those things. And he says, you know what is never, ever in the bottle when I go through that process? Alcohol. They never say alcohol. And that's just another way of saying that this mental and spiritual component of this disease is what we really have to recover from in this program. We get sober pretty quick, but it's recovering from that mental and spiritual part of it that's the constant process of Alcoholics Anonymous. But anyway, I had all of those negative characteristics when I took that first drink, and that's why that's why alcohol became such a good friend for me. Well, I set out on a drinking career, alcohol, I think, helped me get through law school. I think it helped me make better grades. It's kind of like playing golf. It's, uh, you go out on a hangover and you keep your head real steady when you're swinging the golf club. And law school was kind of the same way. I could kind of, on a hangover, just sit right there. I mean, I didn't want to move. I didn't want to do anything. Just sit right there and read that book. And I think it helped me get through law school and it settled me down. And I went on to become the greatest trial lawyer that ever lived. I was going to be the, I was going to be the next Clarence Darren. I went down to Houston, went to work for a big law firm and things were going pretty well. But unfortunately, as we all know, this disease of alcoholism is progressive. And over any given period of time, it always gets worse, never better. And mine began to progress. And the people who loved me around me, my wife at the time, and others, began to complain about my drinking. al are that way. They are not at fault. They seem to have been born that way.
1: <laughs> I,
0: I think there must be some al in the room here this morning. I, I can feel the vibrations a little bit. It's, usually I like to tease al a little bit. Tell a few alanine st- alanine stories, like uh, how many alanines does it take to uh, screw in a light bulb? None. They detach and let the bulb screw itself. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to get a, on a roll on the alanine drugs. Um, kind of like the alanine drinkers, you know, they they take one, maybe two, on a really festive occasion and. And then you offer them another, and they say, uh, no, 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 I'm beginning to feel it. (laughs) It's what what you're supposed to do, you know. (laughs) I have a lot of gratitude for the Al-Anon program. I want to mention that. And uh, uh, I've attended a lot of Al-Anon meetings, and I still do. And I'm married to an alcoholic, a recovering alcoholic, and I'll talk about that a little bit later. And uh, most of my friends are alcoholics. And I feel I need Al-Anon just as much as I need AA, and I've got a lot of gratitude for that program as well. Uh, so please forgive my teasing a little bit. But anyway, those around me began to complain of, of, about my drinking. And of course, what I thought was they had changed. Their attitude about my drinking had changed. I hadn't changed. I had that denial. I couldn't see that my drinking was progressing or that it was beginning to interfere uh, in my life in any way. I just shut that down and I couldn't look at it. Now, it was about this time I'd been practicing law for a few years down in Houston for Fulbright, Cooker, Freeman, Bates, and Jaworski which was a big law firm, about 115 lawyers. I thought it was the biggest law firm in the world. Today there are about 450 lawyers. One of the things that was on my men list when I finally did it in the steps was I need to go back to Fulbright, Cooker, Freeman, Bates, and Jaworski and make amends for leaving them. My sponsor says, David, he says, you're supposed to make amends to people you've harmed. And I really think Fulbright, Cooker, has done very well without you. I mean, they're now 450 lawyers and they're making a lot of money. (coughs) So, anyway... It was about this time that I took my first geographical cure. And that's another symptom for most of us in this disease. And we do it in a lot of different ways. It may not be a geographic move, but we move from house to house and wife and wife and relationship to relationship and car to car and all kinds of things because we want it more, better and different and it's going to make us happy. We just have that or be there or go there or do that job. We can be, we can be happy. Uh, we can find it. We're restless, irritable and discontent as the doctor's opinion tells us in the book. And we just take a lot of, quote, geographic cures. And this was my first geographic cure. What happened was I came into the office one morning, this big law firm, with a terrible hangover. And it was one of those hangovers that, uh, uh, you know, your head's just splitting and your stomach's upset and you're, you're spacey. You know, somebody says something to you and it takes about 45 seconds for it to register. and You're just a little slow in the conversation. And it was one of those kind of hangovers. And uh, you have to know in this story that I office right or right next door to one of the founding partners of Fulbright, Crooker, Freeman, Bates, and Jaworski, who was old man John Crooker, Sr. Uh, John Crooker, Sr. at that time was about 80 years old. He still came to the office every day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. He was a, a Scotsman, about five feet, one inches tall, and he was feisty and cussed like a sailor. And to give you some idea, and please forgive my language, but I, I have to tell you this for this to make sense, um, to, to give you an idea about how he did, one day he had his office door open and he wanted to call his son, Crooker Jr., who was also uh, a, a, a partner in the law firm, and he dialed his own number by mistake. And his secretary right outside his office picked it up and said, John Crooker Sr.'s office. He said, no, God damn it, this is Crooker Sr. God damn it, I called Crooker Jr. Now, God damn it, put him on the phone. <clears throat> and he would go on like this all day long. Well, this morning I came in with my uh hangover. Got a cup of coffee and immediately had to go to the restroom. And I went back in the restroom and I was uh, thinking I was all alone in there, standing there at the urinal. When all of a sudden I hear this voice out of one of the stalls. "God damn it, who is it out there?" I said, "Well, it's David Muscolat, Mr. Crocker." And he says, "Well, god damn it, I need some help. My goddamn zipper's stuck." <laughs> right then I knew it was not going to be my day. So I said, okay, Mr. Cooker, I'll see what I can do. So I went around in front, and he opened the stall, and there he stood all five feet one inches tall of him. And I'm telling you, I look down, look around to be sure nobody's around.
1: <laughs>
0: and I reach down and start trying to work with his zipper, and it's just hopelessly entangled in his underwear.
1: <laughs>
0: and the only way I'm going to be able to help him is to get down on my knees in front of him. Now, let me tell you, I hadn't prayed in a long time, but I prayed then
1: <laughs>
0: that nobody would come in, but they did. <laughs> and it was right after that that I left fulbright cooker freeman Base in Washington and moved up to Dallas and set up my own law office.
1: <laughs>
0: it was right after that I did move. It didn't really result from that, but that really did happen. So I moved up to Dallas. And uh well I was gonna knock 'em dead again. I was gonna be the next plants there of Dallas. And uh and I had a period there where I functioned pretty good. My my alcoholism started progressing even more. Uh it was a rowdy, wild, gregarious law practice. Uh, I thought any good trial lawyer was a very gregarious person. But part of the deal was you went to court and then you went and got drunk and you got up the next morning and went back to court and then you went and got drunk and got rid of the tension and that's the way I thought you lived. And I began to do that more and more and uh But I I was able to build a small law firm, and we became known as a young, dynamic law firm in Dallas, and and we were beginning to grow, and we were up to about 15 lawyers. And then the things began to happen to me that happened to us with this alcoholism. The first thing is my drinking just continued to progress, and I couldn't see it because of that denial. I couldn't see that I was now anywhere I went ordering my drinks two and three at a time. I couldn't see that any time I had people over at my house, I mixed my drinks much stronger than I mixed anybody else's. I couldn't see that I was beginning to like to drink alone. I liked to just buy a, a pint or a half a pint of Wellers, which had become my drink of choice, and go around and drink that Wellers and water. God, I can still taste it sometime, you know, when I think about it. And I couldn't see, I couldn't see that I never went anywhere that didn't serve alcohol. One of my great discoveries in Alcoholics Anonymous is cafeterias. God, I hadn't been to a cafeteria in years. You know, I love cafeterias, but I wouldn't go because they didn't serve alcohol. I couldn't see all of these things. I couldn't see how it was beginning to impact my life. And what was happening was my life began to unravel. That law firm that I had founded ended up asking me to leave because of my drinking. I ended up broke, unable to make my house payment, unable to buy groceries for my family. And there were some brief rebounds during this period. Just as you read Bill's story in the beginning of the book, you see this. It's not a straight line. There's We can claw our way back up for moments during this progression downward, but it's always a gradually decreasing wavy line downward, and that's the way it was with me. I would get broke, I couldn't pay the bills, I would scratch my way up, go get a job, put my head to the grindstone, work a while, and, and then I would lose it. I couldn't keep it, I couldn't hold it. All of my, my I had tremendous problems in my marriage, long separation. I had my first child during this period of time, and had to face that I was a failure as a father. I couldn't handle the responsibilities of a father. I was beginning to lose my fin- friends, and my financial life was in distress. In every area of my life, I was becoming a failure. In my marriage, morally, with my friends, financially, business. And I couldn't see it. And I couldn't see that alcohol was causing this. Now, I finally reached my bottom in September 1980. And I don't know why I reached my bottom then. Things were bad, but they had been bad. And why I came to a realization to do something about my drinking that day, I can't explain, except by God's grace. But I do know on that day, September 28, 1980, I woke up and had to have a drink. And I went and I poured myself a big iced tea glass of Wellers and a splash of water. And I sipped on that until I settled myself down. And then I went and sat in a chair in my living room, and and three thoughts clearly came in my mind and I can't explain where they came from and why they came that day. And those three thoughts were, David, alcohol is the problem, you can't handle it, and you need help. And at that moment, I resolved to contact Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I didn't know very much about Alcoholics Anonymous. In fact, I really knew nothing about it. And I'm one of those that had that mental picture of Alcoholics Anonymous as being a dark basement room with a single strand light bulb and a bunch of old men sitting around being very unhappy, uh, not drinking. By the way, I had to do a project in Argentina this last fall for three months, and I found an AA group that was just like that.
1: <laughs> I said,
0: finally I found what AA's supposed to be. I mean, it met in a little church and a little dingy room and had a single-strand light bulb and... Uh, there wasn't anybody there with less than 10 years sobriety, and they weren't real happy in that particular little group. And I'm telling you, we finally livened it up a little bit. But
1: uh,
0: but that was my image of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, but I thought that's where you had to go. Somewhere I'd learned or heard or knew for some reason that A.A. was the place you went and where you were sentenced if you had a drinking problem. And it was a humiliating thought to me. It was an embarrassing thought to me. I thought that was the real bottom, having to go to A.A. Now, I've got three college degrees and it never occurred to me never occurred to me that you could look in the phone book and find the telephone number for Alcoholics Anonymous. I assumed it was so anonymous it wouldn't be listed in the phone book. So I didn't call anybody that Sunday but the amazing thing was I didn't drink the rest of that Sunday. Monday morning I contacted a friend of mine that I knew was in AA, and he said, come on over, let's talk. And I did. And I can remember going over to his office and the fear I felt. And the fear I felt was of never drinking again. I couldn't comprehend never drinking again. It just, it just, I just, I mean, it just terrified me. It terrified me. I couldn't understand how I would ever, and I told my friend that, I, I can't get through a trial again without having, being able to go drink in the evenings. I can't sit home with my family. I can't face that boredom without drinking in the evenings. I can't, I can't, uh, I can't ever take a vacation again because I can't get on an airplane and go anywhere and not drink. I can't do any of those things. And of course what he told me was, was the first real learning that I got in AA. He said, David, you don't have to worry about those things. We don't quit for a week or a month or a year. We just don't drink today. And all you got to do is just don't drink today. You don't have to worry about next week in that trial or the following week when you take that trip. Just today. One day at a time. And I grabbed hold of that one day at a time, that first day, and I've hung on to it ever since. And still my sobriety stacks up one day at a time. I don't even think about my birthdays coming up anymore. They just come up and surprise me. I'm so focused on that one day at a time because I'm one of those guys that didn't have the courage to quit for a week or a month or a year. I had never been able to do that. I'd waked up a lot of mornings with the resolve not to drink at least a day or two because I was feeling remorse, and I knew I needed to do that to get things put back together and to get my family back in shape and off my back. But I was never able to do it. When 5 o'clock came, I just changed my mind. That's all. No big argument, no big mental process. I just changed my mind. I could not hold that resolve. So so I was one of those who had to hang on to that one day at a time. And now today, that one day at a time is living in the now. It's a much broader concept than just not drinking one day at a time. It's living in the now because when I get back into that past and those if-onlys and what ifs, when I run into a guy and I see how well he's doing and he wasn't afflicted with this disease and he's so far ahead of where I I think I ought to be, you know, I can get into that self-pity and the what-ifs and the if-onlys real quick. And when I get off in the future, one of two things happens to me. I either become grandiose and I project all of these fantastic things that are going to happen and set myself up for terrible disappointment or I project the negative, and I go into severe depression. I, You know, I can start thinking that uh, the world's coming to an end pretty quick. A good example of that happened uh, shortly after I was sober. One day, my wife, uh, I came home to eat dinner, and we, we were having steak, and I sat down for that steak dinner, and my wife didn't put the ketchup bottle on the table. Now, to tell you about my disease, let me tell you what happened. I said, well, she did that intentionally. The reason she did that is she knows I grew up in East Texas and she thinks it's kind of country to eat ketchup on steaks. Therefore, that's a real put down. Probably all of my friends think I'm kind of hickey coming from East Texas. They probably all think the same way about me. And besides that, you know, this is going to affect our finances and they're going to go to hell. I'm probably going to have to go into bankruptcy next week. <laughs> and that's just the way my thought processes work. So, living in the now has become one of the real principles of this program that I have to hold on to on a daily basis. Now, I went to my first meeting, and of course, it just it just it really made an impression on me. I was talking with someone before the meeting about that. I walked up to that first meeting feeling humiliated and embarrassed, and I walked in there expecting this dark place, and of course, what I found was a group of people with a twinkle in their eye and a brightness in their eye that I hadn't seen in a long time. And and there were women there which I didn't know and there were young people there which I didn't know and it just made a tremendous impression on me. And I was one of those that had that instant feeling, I'm finally hit the right place. This is the place I'm supposed to be. Now, in those early days I did have still a little about egotism. And uh I remember it uh within about three or four days of being in the program I attended a discussion meeting. And uh, uh, by that time, I thought I'd pretty well figured out this deal, being a lawyer, and I kind of needed to tell you about it. And when it came my time to talk, I talked for about 30 minutes and explained the whole program to you. And when I finished, this kid came up. Now, this kid was dressed in a leather jacket. He had a shirt open down to his navel, and he had chains. He was wearing an earring, and, and he had those... Uh, I object to anybody dressing like that today. had long hair, dressing that way today, but at that time, You know, I was coming from the downtown law firm, the pinstripe suit, designer tie, and I thought I was a little bit different place than he was. Anyway, this kid came up to me and said, Sir, I just wanted to tell you, I really did enjoy what you meant to say in that meeting today. (laughs) 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 At that time, I always liked to drop the fact that I had three college degrees when I was talking and had a guy come up to me after another meeting. He said, Sir, let me tell you something. You know a thermometer has degrees, too, and you know where they stick that sometimes, don't you?
1: <laughs>
0: so, <laughs> fortunately, you begin to kind of soften the edges for me there right off the bat. But one of the things you told me right off was to get a sponsor, and I did that. And I found a great sponsor, and I do have a great sponsor. And I know that many of you know my sponsor, Jerry Jones from Dallas. And Jerry's a wonderful sponsor. And uh, he told me a couple of things right off that saved me. He said, David, you're going to hear two lies in hey and you better be ready for them. The first lie you're going to hear is that this is a suggested program of recovery. He said, let me tell you something. That book is about precisely how we recover. And your job is going to be to do it precisely how they outline it in the book. It is not a suggested program of recovery. That's how you recover from this disease. And so I took that to heart. And from the very beginning, I was committed to work the steps like the book prescribed them, and that's what I attempted to do. And I'm grateful to Jerry for that advice. The other thing he told me was, the other line, David, you're going to hear, it's like a cafeteria. You can go through the line and take what you want and leave what you don't like. He said every one of those steps is important, every one of those steps you need, and it's not a cafeteria. You can't pick and choose between them. You need to do each one of them, and you need to do each one of them in the order they're written in the book. And so that's the program I followed, and I'm grateful for that today. Now, early on with Jerry, I faced the problem of God. I was a guy who, by that time, was severely agnostic. I was arrogantly agnostic. I was ridiculously agnostic. I had given up hopes on religion, and I thought anybody that had any spiritual thoughts or religious people were foolish and dumb and stupid. And I was one of those kind of drunks that like to get drunk in a bar and argue religion with you. And as a lawyer, I thought I could always ask the questions you couldn't answer, like how many angels can dance on the head of a pen, and really earth-shattering questions like that. And when I really focused on the fact that this solution is a spiritual solution and there's a God part of this program, I didn't think I'd make it. I really didn't. I remember Jerry asking me one day, he said, uh, David, uh, do you believe in God? And I said, no. And he said, well, are you willing to believe in a power greater than yourself? And I said, no. Uh, He thought a minute. He said, well, do you think that maybe, possibly, you could pretend that maybe there is? I said, I think I can do that. And he said, great, that's step two. Let's go into step three. (laughs) Now, in reality, what happened to me, if you're one of those, if you're new here today and you have problems, with the spiritual part of this program, which is the solution of this program, then and you, you're an agnostic or an atheist or you have problems with it, take heart. Because this program will work for every one of us. I think more than 50% of us come in here that way. And let me tell you what happened to me. The first thing that happened to me is that you told me it worked for you and I believed you. And that was the first great step for me in Alcoholics Anonymous. You told me it worked for you and I believed you. I think that's the secret of AA. One alcoholic sharing one-on-one with another alcoholic. Because we believe each other when we wouldn't believe somebody else. And nobody else could have ever given me that hope but another alcoholic. But another alcoholic. And so when you told me it worked for you, I began to have some hope that it could work for me. The second thing you told me was, I didn't have to understand it for it to work. God, what a burden off my shoulders. All of my life, I, I thought, you couldn't buy into anything unless you could absolutely define it and map it out and answer all the questions and absolutely explain Maybe you could believe it and buy into it. He said, no, David, you don't have to understand it for it to work. It's like Jim Williams from Fort Worth says, when you know you don't know, that's when you know. And even the book tells us that. It says, as soon as we lay aside prejudice and express even a willingness to believe in a power greater than ourselves, We commence to get results, even though we cannot define or comprehend that power, which is God. And so we don't have to understand it for it to work. And ultimately, I began to understand, who am I to understand God anyway? And even today, I don't pretend to have a lot of understanding about God, but it works. And I believe it. And I accepted the fact that I didn't have to understand it for it to work. And the final thing you told me was, David, you've got to take action. This is a program of action. Faith without works is dead, and unless you do your part, it's not going to work. I'm reminded of a an ethnic joke, but I'll tell it because my my favorite Jewish person in Dallas, Dr. Jack R. told me this um, this story. He's Jewish, so I want to tell you the story about to, about my friend Abi, who looked up in the sky one day and he said, "God, I don't understand it. I just can't understand what you're doing to me. I've been good all my life. I've been good to my family. I've been good to my children." and you've never let me win the lottery. And suddenly this big voice boomed out of the sky and said, Amy, for goodness sakes, meet me halfway. Buy a ticket. (laughs) We have to buy the ticket. We have to take the steps we're required to take, and we have to do the action. That's the way the deal works. Now, the action you first told me to take, in addition to make 90 meetings in 90 days, read the big book, keep coming back and don't drink. The first other real action you told me to take was to start each day with a prayer and ask God to keep me sober, and to end each day with a prayer and thank God for keeping me sober that day. God, I didn't want to do that. But I was willing enough that I did it. And I started going in my bathroom each day and closing the door and started asking God to keep me sober. And I felt ridiculous. And I felt like I was talking to a to a wall. But I did it every day. And there came a point in time, and it wasn't too long a time, when I realized I hadn't wanted to drink in a while. God, I hadn't wanted to drink in a while. And I also realized I was beginning to feel something as a result of that prayer and meditation. I was feeling something. I was beginning to experience God. And it is through the experience of God that I came to believe in this power greater than myself. It really wasn't because you convinced me with some good argument. It was because I took the action that you told me to take, and as a result of the action, I experienced God. The big book tells us that the fundament, fundamental idea of God is deep down with each in each one of us. It is only there that the great reality may be found. And that this spiritual life is not a theory. We have to live it. We have to experience it. And it's the experience of it that led me to believe in this power greater than myself. Well, I would like to tell you that uh, I gained this great spirituality, came to believe in God, and went off into the sunset to pursue the course of happy destiny, and everything was great. But that's not the way life is, and we all know that. Life in AA is wonderful, but we're not insulated from the bumps and the ups and downs and the things that can happen to us as human beings living in this world. And I've had my share of those experiences I'm sure you have. The difference is that this wonderful program gives us the tools to cope with them without having to escape from them. That's the difference. I've had to face... Uh, problems, for example, in my financial life. In my financial life. I've been a terrible financial manager. All of my character defects seem to coalesce around money and problems with money. I think when my daddy gave me my first nickel to spend, I went out and spent a dime. And that's the way my life has gone ever since. And let me tell you something. In one sense, I could really live in the now when I was practicing alcoholic. I mean, I could go out and borrow money, and and unfortunately, I had a great ability to borrow money. I could go out and borrow money. I could completely live in the now and have no feel about how I was going to pay that money back. Oh, live for the day. Don't worry about tomorrow. Just live for today. And I brought a lot of those money problems with me into AA. And they finally reached a crisis proportion with me back about 1986 and 87 when they did with a lot of people. Uh, all of us, you know, in these recent years, have seen a lot of people go through financial stresses, and particularly in this part of the country, a lot of job losses and job changes and financial distress, as we know. But uh, in '86 and '87, mine became very critical because I'd been involved in a lot of leveraged real estate, and it all went south, and uh, further south, I should say. And uh, and I had to face the specter of bankruptcy, and I worked with my sponsor Jerry on that, and and became comfortable with what my obligations. Uh, under the program were in practicing the principles and making my amends, and I was prepared to do what I had to do. And uh, But there was one solution to my financial problems, and that was to sell my house. I had made a good buy on my house. It had a tremendous equity in it. I could take that money and pay the banks off and work out of the mortgage debt. But that house wouldn't sell. And it sat on the market, it sat on the market, it sat on the market for 18 months without a nibble. And there were moments when I was frustrated and I would say, God, there's a solution here. Why won't you let it happen? I'm willing to do the right thing. And it just wouldn't happen. But I had enough time in the program and enough faith that I knew there must be some reason for it. Well, one day in in March of 1987, two people walked in that house on the same day, liked it, and before 5 o'clock that afternoon, both submitted contracts on the house. We worked one of them and sold the house, but we had to be out in three weeks. So I had to find another place to live in a big hurry. We called the realtor we wanted to use, and she was out of town. It was spring break. We called another realtor we we knew, out of town, spring break. We called another one we knew, out of town, spring break. So we had to call a realty company, Cold, and were put with a woman that I would have never been with, but for the absolute precise timing of these events. And we told her we wanted to look out north. She says, fine, but there's one house I want to show you down south.
1: <laughs> and we
0: went and looked at that house. I said, well, I won't hurt to look at it on the way out north. But we're absolutely not interested. Walked in, looked at it. That's the house we bought. Would have never looked at that house, but for being with this particular realtor, who I wouldn't have been with, but for the precise timing of those events. We moved into that house. It then became a long way for me to get to an AA group. A real long way, And after I'd been there two or three months, I said, why isn't there an AA group in this area? And so I started talking with other people, AAs that lived in that area. I said, I don't know why there's not an AA group in this area. So we started an AA group. That's the Dallas Central Group in Dallas. And I had an opportunity to be of real service in AA in that group. And that particular group serves a purpose in Dallas where there was a real need for the young people in AA. This group opened up its arms to the adolescents and the teenagers and the young college-age kids, and we have hundreds of them that come to that group. And they participate on the steering committee, and they chair meetings, and some of those meetings are awful, I have to tell you, but they learn from it. And they experience their sobriety in that process. And it's been one of the greatest services I could have ever been called upon to perform. And I was driving one day, and suddenly I understood. David, you thought you were solving a financial problem, And that wasn't what was going on at all. You were being put in a place where you could perform a service that it was your time to perform. And I now accept that that's the way this deal works. I don't worry about those finances anymore. The book tells us that spiritual well-being always precedes material well-being. And when we're in a mode of providing service, the material things will take care of themselves. And that's where I've come in dealing with all those anxieties I've had all those years with finances. I've had to learn that through the program. In the area of sex and relationships, I always say, yeah, now we're getting to the good part here. Uh, the book tells us that we all needed an overhauling there. Or that many of no, I'm sorry, it says many of us needed an overhauling there. And that was true of me. You know, we all hear the advice in AA That's frequently given. You need to lay off sex and relationships during the first year. Of course, we don't know whether that works because no one's ever done it. (laughs) But I had my problems in that area, too. And uh, I've had to go through a divorce in AA. And it was a painful process. And I'm very grateful for the tools of the program in getting through that divorce. And I had to face, in the process of that divorce, my own part in it. My dishonesty, the resentments I brought into that relationship, my inability to communicate, particularly to communicate my feelings, and I had to deal with those. And I had to deal with the feelings of inadequacy and guilt and the sense of failure that goes with the breakup of a marriage. But the great message from this program is that we can get through those rifts in our life. And with everybody I've seen in the program, which gives me the faith to keep going through those problems, they've always gotten ultimately to a better place on the other side if they've kept the faith in the process. And that's happened with me. I was remarried uh, uh, January 1 last year. Uh, my wife, Teresa, is sorry she couldn't be here with me today and be with you today. She's a recovering alcoholic of six years of sobriety. We had an AA wedding. We wrote our own service, and it was a wonderful wedding. Great story happened at that wedding. It was a small group. We had an AA meeting following the, meet, the, the wedding, but there were some family members there who don't know much about the program, and one of them was Teresa's stepmother, who was drinking her, her little vodka tonic during the AA meeting.
1: <laughs> A week
0: later, she called my wife and said, Oh, I've been telling all my friends about this AA wedding and going to this AA meeting. is the first meeting I've ever gone to. It's great. Well, actually, it was the second meeting I've ever gone to. And Teresa said, Really? When was the first one? She said, Well, back in the early 1940s. There was this nice man, Bill, what's his name, Bill something other, that founded AA, came to our church and made a talk, and then he took us to an AA meeting after the, uh, after the talk. And I said, my God, here we are at this AA meeting at our wedding, and the only person drinking is the only person in the room that ever knew Bill Wilson. <laughs> <coughs> uh,
2: <laughs> but
0: Teresa and I... Teresa and I are really trying to apply the principles of the program. I wish I could give you a lot of wisdom on relationships, but I'm not real good at them, frankly. But we're trying. And we're trying to practice acceptance in that relationship, to take each other just as we are with all the good and the bad, and not ask each other to change, and give each other the freedom to be who we are. We're really trying to practice courtesy and attention, which we forget to do so often with the people that are closest around us. And we are practicing honesty. It's the first time I've been able to say that I'm doing that in a relationship. We're practicing honesty. We're being honest with each other about our feelings and about our actions. And those are things I've learned in the program and learned through the, in the tools of this program and uh, am very grateful for. And then the area of my job. I don't know about you, but I've had a lot of problems with work since I recovered, since I've been sobered up. I had a lot of problems for many years in working. I really did. There were days when I was non-functional. There were days when I couldn't even dictate the simplest transmittal letter. I just would sit at my desk in in action and couldn't do it. And I've had to work hard in figuring out what the principles of this program are to apply to my job. And I've come up with a little set of practical principles. I know some people talk about the principles as being the four absolutes, truth and honesty and purity and and, uh, unselfishness tell you the truth, I don't know how to go downtown as a lawyer and practice purity. I don't know what that means or what it tells me to do. And I've had to come down to a keep-it-simple, simpler form of the principles in my life, in all these areas. And in my job, it's pretty simple. Show up on time. Stay at work during office hours. Do what's in front of me to be done. Do the next thing that's on my desk to be done. Don't question what I'm supposed to be doing. Whenever I'm upset, no matter what the cause, do not do anything. Go talk to a sponsor, go to a meeting, sit on it for a while, but do not react and go fussing around the office. Give credit, never take it. Boy, that's a hard one. You know, one of the hardest things to do in this program is to really go out of your way to help somebody and then not talk about it at the next meeting you go to. You know, we just got to urge to tell people about it. And I had to learn in that work, give credit. Don't take it, Give credit, don't take it. There are a lot of paradoxes we learn in this program, but one of them is when you give credit, you end up getting credit. And kind of didn't believe that so I did it. And so I had to learn those simple rules on my job. This past year was a rough time for me workwise. Without going into any details, I reached a point where I felt it was necessary to leave my law firm. I was a senior partner at a, a large law firm in Dallas. I was on its management committee. And I did leave March 1 of this year and set up my own office. And there were a lot of negative things that happened to me, again, that I kept questioning, saying, why are these happening? Why are these happening? And now, you see, I see a whole different perspective of that because the very best thing that ever happened to me is that I'm in this law practice on my own now. I feel so free and so wonderful with it. I've been so busy since I hit that office March 1, I've hardly had time to come up for air. Uh, and it's the best thing that ever happened to me. Over and over in this program, I've learned that lesson. I don't know what's best for myself. I never did know what's best for myself, and I never will know what's best for myself. You see, I thought the very worst thing that ever happened to me was being an alcoholic. And I can tell you today that the very best thing that ever happened to me was being an alcoholic and coming to AA. The fellowship of this program is my lifeblood. I'm one of those that came here as a cold, standoffish kind of person. And I have learned to thrive upon the fellowship and the hugging and the physical contact of Alcoholics Anonymous. The first time I ever had that was at a meeting. I'd been in the program about a year, and this guy from Lake Whitney, Texas, his name was Bob White. Many of you may remember Bob. came up to me. He was gray-headed. looked like your picture of a grandfather. And he came up to me and threw his arms around me, and he said, "Give me a hug, sugar." Well, I was standing there like this, you know. But I've come to thrive up on that, and it's my lifeblood. I appreciate the opportunity of been here today, and I've, I've really enjoyed the visit with you. And uh, I hope to be back again someday. Thanks.